0: We are so glad that you are here. If you are new here and don't know, I am Christopher Mack. I am one of the pastors here at Vox. And this is our teaching or preaching or homily or message time, whichever one of those you prefer. And I wanted to introduce to you, though you may know her, she's been here for a little over a year and a half, Lily Ettinger, uh, who will be offering not her first homily ever, um, in fact, I think I just learned today was a pastor at a church in West Kama, Texas, for six years. So probably has more preaching under her belt than I do. Um, but we'll be sharing for the first time here at Vox with us. You are the mother of Caroline. You are the director for the Center of Students in Recovery. Uh, at the University of Texas at Austin. And I was just looking at your bio, I did not know this last time I said. In 2020, she was awarded the National Collegiate Recovery Staff Member of the Year Award. So, yes. We are grateful to have you share with us today. Thank you.
1: Um, It has like my fancy formal picture I wasn't expecting to see on his tablet. Uh, Thank y'all so much for letting me be here today. For those of y'all who don't know me, the answer is you don't know me yet. I am a very extroverted person and I love to get to know people, so I'd love to get to know you if I don't already. And if I already know you, I wanna know you more. So, um, as Christopher said, I started coming to Vox when I moved back to Austin about a year and a half ago. Um, after spending most of my adult life in Waco, because that's where people want to live, right? Um, I spent college there, seminary there, worked at churches there. I did briefly live in Kentucky uh, and Dallas, working for churches and for a Christian rock station for a while. Um, So 89.7 Power FM, if any of you knew that. I was your afternoon drive DJ for a while. Um, But when I told... uh, My friends and folks at the church that I was attending in Waco, which was UBC Waco, um, that I was moving to Austin, they said, oh, go to Vox. And so, Um, (laughs) ta-da. There are three things that I need to make a church or to decide that a church is home. Uh, The first is basic agreement with the important stuff. Just one. Um, The second is that somewhere they have to have a copy of my half-sleeve tattoo of Rublev's icon of the Trinity uh, somewhere in the building and uh, I got the tattoo when I was 19, and the best thing is it's up here for the doxology. That pretty picture with the three people, that icon, I have it as a tattoo. You can't see it, long sleeves, it's January. Um, But that's number two. The third is the weirdest. Very important and very irrational, but we go with it and I just believe it. I have to have lived in the same house as one of the ministers. Um, not at the same time as the minister, but in this like weird twist of like fate, life thing that does not at all make any sense. Um, this has been true of every church that I've not been a staff member of in my adult life. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so I heard about Vox multiple times, uh, and after understandably checking nowhere else out, I came here, and I was here for a few weeks, and I saw my tattoo. Um, And then I heard Christopher give a sermon talking about a time where he lived in this house in Waco that had bees in the walls. uh, And I realized, oh, I lived there. Um, Not at the same time. Uh, But yes, we lived in the same house in Waco. uh, And I'm very glad to report that I lived in Austin before I learned that there had been bees in the wall. Um, So the last kind of unknown, uh, and the first time this has really been an opportunity, was how Caroline felt about the church. Uh, That wasn't something that... She really had a say in when she was one, and we started attending our previous church. Um, and it did not take long for her to start booking it to Sunday school. Um, she does like her dad's church because they have an aquarium, so y'all should get on that wherever Vanessa went. Uh, but her interest in being here is my new like fourth thing I'll have to add to my importance in a church list if we ever leave Austin again. So they let me come sit up here and speak. Um, and I'm really glad it's today, uh, because if you are a person who loves the fancy church calendar, uh, while today's technically Baptism of Jesus Sunday, it's also the Sunday closest to Epiphany, which is one of my favorite and super underrated holidays, because it is the beginning of king's cake season. You can now have all the king's cake you want until Ash Wednesday. Um, it is the day I take down the Christmas tree and get rid of all the Christmas decorations. Um, but what I'm feeling blunt, today is no duh day. Um, Because by now I've figured out which of my New Year's resolutions are going to make it through the year (laughs) and which ones are not. So last year, um, I actually, and you can put the next slide if you want, made it my goal to read less books than I had the year before. Um, And uh, you can see the progress I made behind you. Uh, And to my surprise, I actually did. This is less books than 2022. Nine less. So not that many, but enough. Uh, I've met my goal. Uh, Even though I read half of the Animorphs series as an adult uh, this past year, recommend it. Um, I love a good book. I love memoirs. I love popular science. I love speculative fiction, uh, sci-fi, fantasy. I'm in the middle of Iron Flame, so don't ruin it for me. Uh, Yes. Uh, I'm also, like, just instant winner and lover of all time-travel books. So, but the thing I love about books is that at some point in every good book, there's a no-duh moment that the book has clearly been foreshadowing for like the entire time, but the characters, and sometimes me, and I'm really happy when it's me too, uh, have totally missed. I love sitting in my book chair and that squealing or gasp moment, uh, because in fiction, when it happens, Uh, it's good, it's always good. It's so much better than it is when the gaffs moment happens in real life because that happens to generally be that life realization, little e epiphany, oh no. But in books, it's a fun one. Sometimes they are fun in real life. Uh, Sometimes they're serious, but they lead to gratitude. Um, And I didn't come to my love of books on my own. I come from a book family. I don't know how else to explain this. But it was not until, of all things, I read my grandmother's obituary that I mentioned, that mentioned her book habit, that I realized that despite like our pretty messy relationship, it was her influence as a voracious reader on her kids, which became my stepdad's voracious reading and his influence on me that became my voracious reading. She was the matriarch of our family, And I was in a space where I could name all of the things I didn't want to repeat, all the things I didn't like about her, but it was actually in her obituary that I really saw how much of her was in me, how much of me that I like came from her. And that's one of those little e epiphany moments. So before I go too far, I want to ask you all and give you all some time, maybe you can turn to your neighbor, visit for a second, can you recall one of those little e epiphany moments? a life realization, which in retrospect, appeared glaringly obvious. Does anybody have one that they want to share? It's gonna ask for some vulnerability. I
0: my entire extended family is ADHD.
1: If y'all didn't hear, it's realization entire extended family is ADHD. Does anybody else have one? I know I'm putting people on a spot to be vulnerable, so I get it. Yeah? I realize it's important to be intentional about living close to your friends. It's important to be intentional about living close to your friends. Yes, seriously. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank y'all. Thank y'all for sharing those. Um, I feel like I've been a pretty open about where this sermon is going. It's Epiphany Sunday. We're talking about epiphanies. The title of the sermon is literally the Epiphany Society. Uh, so this is the part where I talk about the text. Um, because on first glance, as y'all heard earlier, it really sounds more like one of like God's many promises through prophets kind of text, more than like, what does this have to do with an epiphany? One of the things that I like about Isaiah is that it's often assumed to have been written at a few different times. It's not just all written down at once. It's really long, it's like 66 chapters long. I know chapters weren't originally part of it, but it's still long, right? Um, The beginning of that text is very much about like all the warnings, exile's coming, God's not happy, you know, Jerusalem's going to become a shell of itself. The middle very much has the voice that they are in exile, that they've lost Israel, that they aren't around, and then the end is a little different. It's assumed to have been written when they're already back in Jerusalem, when they've already returned from exile. So we know that it wasn't just written at once, we assume that it was written at multiple places during multiple times uh, throughout the exile period of the ancient Israelites. This text is located in that end section where they've already left Israel, they've already come back. So when we see that this is in that restoration is at hand camp, uh, and we read it through that lens, looking backwards, where it's speaking about the darkness, to the present day speaking about restoration, it makes a lot more sense. It reads like, perhaps we thought this darkness would last forever, and yet God's goodness is here. The city will be different. The world will be different. We will be different. And it will be good. More than once in the text, which can now appear above my head again, uh, it emphasizes to the people things like arise and shine. And then we have in verse four look around. That's the first step in every epiphany. Sometimes it hits us in the head, but oftentimes we have to go looking. We have to let light pour into us, into our surroundings because often we can't see whatever is true when we don't want to. Uh, It's really easy to get stuck in cynicism, to avoid getting our hopes up, to avoid the beauty of things that are changing, uh, because there's a lot of hurt that can accompany that process. Verse five though, which I think is gonna be the next slide, is actually my favorite though of all. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and rejoice. that's just a great feeling, and my only Enneagram comment of the entire sermon comes right here, that this is the Enneagram seven dream of how life should be. Say <laughs> glad that I am among my people. Um, but what I like about this message is it's not just, oh, hey, it's Epiphany Sunday, and here's kind of their epiphany, that things are gonna get better. This particular epiphany, what I like so much is that it's not individualistic. This isn't a single person's epiphany about their own life or about the next book plot. This is the epiphany of an entire community that centers that community. It doesn't encourage simply like looking in. It encourages looking out, looking at others, looking at the city, looking at the world, and looking at God. The societal nature of this epiphany, the public nature of it, is what makes this text so exciting to me. So in 2018, Andrea Sang placed in QuiltCon, which is the quilting convention of the Modern Quilt Guild, uh, with her absolute, it's great, it's amazing, you're all missing so much beauty in your life. Um, But she made this absolutely ginormous quilt, it was almost 10 feet by 10 feet, called the here and elsewhere be this. As a currently on hiatus quilter who was at the height of my quilting hobby in 2018, I mostly thought of quilting as something that I did alone. Like, if we want to talk about individualism, quilting is something people do alone, right? At home, after their kids go to bed, you just keep slowly sewing. Um, I did go to a couple, like, Quilt Guild meetings with a couple other people, but it was very much an individual hobby, an individual thing. I still love a good quilt show, though. But the here and the elsewhere be challenged so much of what I thought about quilting because although Andrea Sang conceived it and was responsible for arranging and piecing this, each of these tiny, absolutely maddening to sew two-inch squares, now do two inches for ten feet, um, each of those squares is the work of more than 1,200 visitors to the Canadian Immigration Museum that were collected over months. She was the artist-in-residence there, and she talked to each of those visitors as they created these tiny quilt squares that were about their own immigration experiences. So, each of these squares represents some part of their individual immigration story. To quote Canadian Quilter magazine, the blocks are grouped by thematic trees in a forest, family, love, freedom and diversity, cultural references, new hopes and dreams, appreciation of nature, agriculture, work, and oceanic journeys. Quilts like this take so much time, it's hard to quantify. This is thousands and thousands of hours of labor. I'm not joking. Uh, I absolutely love this quilt, and it would not have existed without more than 1,200 people. It's a corporate quilt. It tells one story, but it doesn't exist without a whole society. Andrew's saying to me is like the prophet Isaiah here, helping us to look around and see that it's not an individual story, it's a corporate story. Its beauty is only here. It only exists. And it's so much more astounding because of that. Because it's made up by a society where we don't control all the pieces. Each of these two-inch blocks do exist individually, but they don't make up a quilt. And as hearers of Isaiah, I think some of those earlier people, they heard the news of Jerusalem's restoration, and like the quilt, it didn't happen because of one of them. It happened because they all gathered there. They all returned. They all made their life anew. We are not, unfortunately, a particularly community-friendly society. (laughs) We live in a highly individualistic culture that seems to lean more that way each year. It's not just churches that are shrinking, but every form of community group from the Rotary Club and Kiwanis and the Seroptimists of my parents' current hometown in Montana to college Greek life. All of these groups are shrinking. Friendships are harder to grow and to keep. Organized everything is trending down. <laughs> our cities grow and our relationships shrink. We're more anonymous and more private, more individual, more lonely. And I think that's one of the things that makes this so important to me about emphasizing like this aspect of the story. It's not about a single person changing their mind. It's about all of us, all of us changing our minds. We are all part of something. We can certainly see God at work in ourselves. I'm not going to pretend like God isn't individually at work within us, but it can be so much harder for us, people who grew up individual, to see God at work in our city, in our community, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. But this is a story where God talks about nations coming together where the text says, they all gather together, they all come to y'all. It says you, but really says y'all. And y'all is the best word. And I love love a story that centers not the individual, but a community. So one of the 102 books I read last year, uh, and one of the more interesting ones was titled The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. I'm not going to spoil it, because it's worth the read. But the back cover summary is that the story is told through the lens of the cities, particularly this one focuses on New York City. But the cities themselves become sentient through the use of human avatars. It's really cool. Um, I'll let NPR tell you why you should read it. Um, So they wrote that the novel is, quote, a love letter, a celebration, and an expression of hope and belief that a city and its people can and will stand up to darkness will stand up to fear, and will, when called to, stand up for each other. This is what the hope for Jerusalem was. This is what the great hope in good fiction is. It's that call, that we are not just individuals waiting for some form of individual salvation, but that we are members of a community, that we are social beings located in particular spaces and times, and all of it together, not just the individual pieces, matter. I like to call this the epiphany. We are called to de-center our individual selves and to look at the community. This is what I think we can be as a church community, an epiphany society, celebrating all of the epiphanies we have, the individual and the corporate, holding on to the truth that God is present, God is loving. And God isn't just here for a bunch of us as individuals, but God is here for our communities, for our neighborhoods, for our forests, for our cities, and for our world. We gather because we know that salvation isn't an individual matter. And we look up because to be interested in our own means that we must be interested in the world around us. There are so many epiphanies we will walk through in life. Um, and I think it's one of the most like beautiful things. Um, the strength of an epiphany is that it surprises us, but that surprise means it helps prevent defensiveness, and it makes us makes it easier for us to do new things together. There's a final part of this holiday uh, and of this text that I kind of want to explore as we wind down. I still have like a third of this left, sorry, y'all. But Epiphany Sunday for Christians includes the New Testament text of the Magi Magi heading to greet Jesus. These are not... Jewish people. This celebrates in many ways that Christ is coming and being physically present to the Gentiles, which includes most, if not all of us. Uh, This foreshadowing is something that we believe. Doesn't seem like an epiphany, of course. Christ came for everybody. Wasn't always that case. This is something we believe, right? That we are all children of God, that the gospel is good news for everyone, that Christ's coming was not only for one group of people, but expanded to include all nations. Today, we celebrate that realization with, oh, we're a part of the story too, no matter our parentage or our heritage. And it may, again, not seem like an epiphany now, but it was a really big one for the early church. It really hasn't always been this way. A lot of the New Testament is wrestling with this idea. And much like many epiphanies, it's only well after we know it that we can go back and see that God has always seen us, that there are many inclusion points throughout scripture. Nations shall come to your light, the scripture we read today says. Nations aren't all Jewish. In Walter Brueggemann's essay, Off by Nine Miles, he talks about this story from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, where the Magi who have read Isaiah 60 uh, saw it and thought that they needed to go to Jerusalem with their frankincense and gold and myrrh and all the other things uh, to greet the new king of peace and prosperity. They went to Jerusalem in this story. Because Jerusalem is where all the main characters go. They went to greet the new king of peace and prosperity. And where are kings? Jerusalem. But when they get there, Herod's like, wait, what? No, no. He has to call the priests together, say, wait, who's this guy they're talking about? Where is he? And they tell the facts of like, oh, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. So that is where the Magi head. They give their gifts, they let us know, and they let us in on the fact that all nations are watching. This is the first time the Gentiles say, hey, we've we've been watching and waiting for our entrance in this story, too. We want all to be here. Sometimes we're the outsiders, and we all want to be fitting in. Bruggemann talks about this as its own little e-epiphany. The wise men thought Jerusalem was where they are supposed to go, the big city where the king lives, city of... Lots of importance in scriptural history, main character city, right? Important people knew important people. And at the time, Jerusalem was being personified basically by its king, by Herod. It was an arrogant city is what we often hear. And yet the wise men had no problem hearing that they were wrong, picking up their gifts and going to Bethlehem, which by some estimates is now like five miles away, but at the time was apparently closer to nine. Because geography um, <laughs> but they had no problem heading to this humble town they had no problem shedding their beliefs of who these gifts belonged to what they looked like where they'd be what kind of place they came from they rerouted they were outsiders but they were able to see and able to change when they saw this essay actually came out a few months after 9-11 and in it he compares the options that the Magi had uh, to the ones we have, that there are two types of worldviews. In the world of ancient Israel, it was between the power capitals like Jerusalem and the rural life that was very sustenance-oriented. In our world, those choices are different, of further and further individualism or of returning to a life that looks beyond ourselves. It was a choice we had to make and in, in, in response to 9-11. I'm a millennial, it is my defining event. Uh, There's a choice as a society that we made, and it has informed the last 20 years. And there's a quote in it that I read, and I read this essay, actually, for the first time during COVID, um, but it stuck with me. And so, yes. Uh, Brueggemann writes that we can choose a return to normalcy in triumphalist mode, a life of self-sufficiency that contains within it its own seeds of destruction. Or we can choose an alternate that comes in innocence and a hope that confounds our usual pretensions. We can receive life given in vulnerability. We can receive life given in vulnerability. I think one of the reasons that I am at Vox, besides all of those cool coincidences, um, is because of this emphasis that isn't on individual salvation, uh, but the understanding that salvation is bigger than that, that God is bigger than that. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in picking up that vibe here. I think we're all still following the star, so to speak, but sometimes we find ourselves off by about nine miles and we have to check in with others to return to asking for help and living in community and not being stuck, not being stuck in our cynicism, in our pain, and our hurt. We have to be vulnerable. We don't have to wait for the next epiphany to do that, uh, to turn our day around to try again. One of my favorite parts of this holiday is that it means that we can bake a cake with a little porcelain baby Jesus in it any time of the year. You don't have to wait for this season either. Eat it and start again. So if y'all will pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be surprised, to try again, to let our defenses down, and to let your spirit give us these little nudges that can send us in entirely different directions, that can help us reinterpret the past and the future. We ask that your spirit be with us as we tie to pay attention to our own little epiphanies and the great epiphany of you and our world and of your love for all people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.